foraging for mushrooms, following rattlesnakes, and illicit corn liquor. This week, we're in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park of Eastern Tennessee. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This week, we're in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. But before we get there, let me remind you, subscribe to Destination Eat Drink and have it delivered automatically to your phone or computer. Just go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, or go to radiomisfits.com and hit the subscribe button. The Great Smoky Mountains National Park is the most visited national park in the United States, and there's no shortage of things to do there. So I called trail guide and naturalist Vesna Placanis on the old Skype machine and talked to her about foraging for food, moonshine, and some of the best places to grab a meal in eastern Tennessee. Destination Eat Drink. With me is Vesna Placanis. She is the owner and founder of Walk in the Woods Nature Guides. She leads tour groups into the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. She also has an eco camp and she teaches classes on wild edibles. Vesna, welcome to Destination Eat Drink. Great. Thank you for having me, Brett. I want to talk to you. This is so interesting because normally we talk about cities and going to restaurants and things like that, but this is something completely different. I think it's really fascinating. Why don't you tell me how you got started in the hiking and outdoors business? When I met my husband about 25 years ago, um, we both really loved the outdoors. Uh, matter of fact, on our honeymoon, we backpacked through Maui for two weeks. Um, and every weekend, every chance we got, we went out um, backpacking, hiking. Uh, and uh, we were living in Atlanta, really hated it. Uh, I had lived in Knoxville before and had completely fallen in love with the Smoky Mountains when I was in college. So I sent him on a 10-day backpacking trip. And when he came back, he was in love, as in love with the Smokies as I was. And uh, he said, I know what we're going to do. And so uh, we started taking naturalist certification courses from a school in North Georgia taught by a man who teaches a lot of Native American uh, Cherokee uh, skills. And um, so we, we took everything from edibles classes, medicinal uses of wild plants, tracking, stalking. And uh, in tw- uh, uh, 21 years ago, we started our hiking business in the Smokies. And it's grown, and we now have almost 20 people on our staff. So you mentioned you sent your husband into the Great Smoky Mountains for 10 days. was Did you have this in your mind that this was kind of a reconnaissance mission to figure out if this was going to be a move that you were going to make? Or was it totally spur of the moment, hey, let's uh, let's close up shop in Atlanta and let's move to the Great Smoky Mountains? Well, I was definitely in love with the park. Um, that was something that, you know, this area just gets under your skin. And uh, I really wanted Eric to feel the same way. Uh, I just, I missed this area. I hated Atlantis with such a... <laughs> <laughs> and 
And, um, you know, so yeah, it kind of worked out that way. My, my, um, my evil plan worked <laughs> 21 years later. That's right. You lead all kind. your tour groups lead all kinds of people into the great smoky mountains national park. But, um, I also follow you on Facebook and I see that you teach a class on wild edibles. In fact, you just did one, uh, this past weekend, Talk to me about your wild edibles class, what people get out of that, what kind of things you teach with that. Well, it's it's so much fun. I spent an entire day in the rain looking for my you know wild edibles. I got everything from dandelions to morels to you know wild onions, um, all kinds of stuff. So I had a I made a um, a quiche with uh, with fried dandelion heads. Um, morel mushrooms. I had uh, chanterelle mushrooms from last year that I dehydrated. I put those in there. I had um, uh, wild onions in there and uh, dock. I put some burdock in there too. Uh, and then I also made a, a wild onion goat cheese uh, flatbread um, also with my wild mushrooms. And um, then I had a salad that I made with vinaigrette, and I did everything from red buds to um, violet leaves to violet flowers to dandelion greens. I had some plantain in there. I had a little bit of uh, hemlock tree, uh, just the, the tips of the hemlock needles. Uh, what else did I put in there? I put a bunch of stuff in there. So it's just a lot of fun to feed people things that you don't tell them what they are until they're done eating. And it's a complete and unexpected happy surprise. You know, that brings up several questions in my mind. The first one is hemlock. Poisonous? Good question. Poison hemlock is an annual that looks a lot like Queen Anne's lace. And the settlers used to confuse the two. Uh, Queen Anne's lace is actually our wild carrot. And uh, hemlock looks very similar, but if you put the wrong thing in your stew, you're killing your whole family. What I eat, what we were putting in there, is a hemlock tree, which is a completely different animal. And that was something that was very sacred to the Cherokee people. That's how they survived uh, the Trail of Tears. About 1,500 Cherokee escaped into the Smoky Mountains. And uh, they basically survived off of the beneficial uses of a hemlock tree. Uh, the inner bark is full of carbohydrates. You can make instant rope. Um, it serves as a really nice uh, shelter because it's like an umbrella. Um, if you make a tea out of it, which I also made for my edibles class, uh, one eight-ounce glass is uh, has more vitamin C than an orange. Um, so it's it's a beneficial, very nice. And then the tips this time of year taste a little bit like rosemary. Wow, sounds fantastic. I never knew there were two different, the hemlock tree and the hemlock plant. Interesting. And you mentioned another plant that I'm not familiar with, uh, Burdock? Was that what you said? Yeah, you have different types of docks. Uh, actually, I've, I've got two docks uh, for my edibles class, but I did the burdock and the curly dock. You, once you saw it, you'd, you'd recognize it. It's something that we look at as a weed. It kind of grows in um, areas that are sort of wet, seepy areas. They're uh, long. Um, they, they almost look like, well, they're long, uh, dark green, and they have red in the middle. So you might confuse them maybe with like a rhubarb, um, but it's a, it's, it grows basil, so it grows right from the ground. It doesn't have a stem. Um, and uh, it's, it's like a spinach substitute. 
you mentioned your morel mushrooms and your chanterelle mushrooms. The question that always comes up when we talk about mushrooms is, how do you tell the difference between mushrooms that are going to be delicious and mushrooms that are going to kill you? All mushrooms are edible once. (laughs) 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 But I tell people there are old mushroom hunters and there are bold mushroom hunters, but there are no old, bold mushroom hunters. Um, And so there are simple ways to identify mushrooms. Um, and, And there are some that once you get to know them, you can't confuse them with anything else. But I highly recommend if you're just starting out to a go with somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, but also stick with the more common, easy to identify ones like puff balls or oyster mushrooms, um, or morels. And once you really kind of get to know those, then you can expand out into, you know, the larger world of mushroom hunting. Um, there, there are, of course, lots of field guides, uh, you know, ways to identify mushrooms, including, um, you know, they're the most of the mushrooms that cause mushroom poisonings are either the LBMs, the little brown mushrooms, um, or the amanitas, which um, have a cup on the bottom and a veil. And so if you kind of learn to identify that, that discards a big majority of your mushrooms that are going to be dangerous. Um, and then sort of get to know the ones that are common. Where do they grow? What season do they grow in? Um, you know, what are their shapes? Uh, what type of trees are they associated with? Because all green plants have mushrooms that are associated with them. Um, and then get a great identifying uh, identification guide. I love Audubon. We've got Peterson's. We have a bunch of different types. Uh, and then do a spore print. That would be the last sort of de- definitive way to identify a mushroom. A spore print is basically like a fingerprint that a mushroom leaves. What about these online uh identifiers for mushrooms. For example, I've seen things where you can take a picture of it and it will tell you what kind of mushroom it is and whether it's poisonous or not. Have you seen these and have you tried to use them? I've I've used them not for my edibles classes. They're definitely an assist in identifying plants, but I would not rely on things like that. I, I have an entire library of books And I'll look at maybe three or four, especially if I'm not sure about something, I'll look at three or four just to match them up. You know, why take a chance? One of the new things that you have for your company, A Walk in the Woods, is your eco camp. Describe this eco camp, what goes on there, what it looks like, and what people can do while they're there. Well, um, it's a gorgeous piece of property adjoining uh, the national park or national park land. It's on 90 acres. Uh, It's got streams and springs everywhere. Uh, It's off the grid, so we don't have electricity. Um, So you have an incredible night sky. The fireflies are everywhere. Uh, There are hot showers that come from a spring. Um, So, of course, we do have, uh, you know, we do have heating units uh, mostly run by propane, although we are installing some uh, solar panels. Um, We have a little uh, garden. Uh, We have a a commercial kitchen, which is really funny. And um, it was really tough to get a commercial kitchen (laughs) off the grid, but I was able to do it. I'll bet just getting the health inspector to come out there was a challenge. Oh, yeah. And they're coming back in June. So that was something. Uh, And then it's got 10 platforms right by a stream. Um, It's just a lovely, lovely, quiet, wonderful, peaceful um, place. So people can go out there 
they can do their hike in the mountains and then they come back in the evening and they can stay at the eco camp, enjoy a dinner and um, just hang out by the stream. Yep, we've got a stream. We've got a great fire pit. Um, we'll ha- we have a camp host. Um, we try to, to stick to local foods as much as we can. Um, and so they'll have this full, full, you know, gourmet meal when they come back and a big breakfast in the morning and then they go hiking during the day. When I think about hiking in the woods, when I think about going out and doing a trek, one of the first things that I think of in my crazy brain is what about uh, wild animals, dangerous animals? Have you ever had any encounters with dangerous animals that freaked you out or, uh, you know, you unexpectedly came upon something? Uh, well, aside from some creepy looking humans once in a while, <laughs> <laughs> um, I did have an encounter with a rattlesnake once. Uh I was mushroom hunting, and when I mushroom hunt, I get very, very focused. To me, it's very meditative, and you don't pay attention to where you're going, and I'll go off trail and just meander. And it was a beautiful spring day. I was walking, and all of a sudden, I heard something scurrying uh, at my feet and looked down, and there was this pretty big rattlesnake. And uh, he didn't rattle at me, but he he was there. And so I jumped back. He kind of jumped back and we sort of looked at each other. And um, I was curious to know why he didn't rattle at me and what I could do to get him to rattle at me because (laughs) he's afraid of of snakes. You're being an antagonist with a rattlesnake. No, I wasn't. I was just hanging out with him. So I was watching him for a little while. And uh, then he he left, and so I followed him at a very respectful distance. And um, this went on for about ten minutes. He'd stop every once in a while, and you know, kind of do his little checking out thing with his tongue. And then he kept going. And then after about ten minutes, he finally gave me this like half-hearted rattle. And then he left, and then I left, and that was sort of the end of our relationship. <laughs> he said, "Get out of here, lady." Exactly. It's like, you are crazy. <laughs> you know, the thing about mushrooming is, um, I, I should I should back up and I should say, you know, in 2015, my novel Truffle Hunt was published. And the only reason that I bring this up, well, two reasons. Number one, you were kind enough to write a blurb on the jacket of the book, which I'm forever grateful for. But also, one of the things about truffle hunting that I think is similar to mushroom hunting is the folks that go out hunting for truffles, they have their places where they know they're going to find truffles. And these are secret places that will die with them. They would rather be tortured than give up their secret truffle hunting location. And I've talked to mushroomers before, and they've kind of said, the same, hey, man, I'm not going to tell you where I go. It's a secret place. Um, do you have secret mushroom hunting places? And do you know folks who, who will not tell you where their secret mushroom hunting places are? Absolutely. Right now is a great morale year. Um, I probably heard a couple years ago we had very tragic fires in the Smokies, and um, fires are a natural part of an environment, and they the forest is recovering spectacularly. And uh, morels in particular love old fire uh, damaged areas. Um, and so, you know, we're having mushrooms everywhere. But yes, we all have our own little places that we go and we'll only take, um, you know, our closest friends and only if we <laughs> them and and you know drive them in circles and then um, you know 
it's a, it's a big thing. Um, but yes, we all have our own stash. Um, and it's a lot of fun. One, because of course we don't want a bunch of people there, but also because it's just our own little private place. You know, it's, it's our connection to the earth. Let's talk about some of the unique dishes of Eastern Tennessee. I haven't been to Eastern Tennessee in at least a couple of decades, I think, but um, one thing I do remember seeing at the like the fairs and the farmers markets is something called dried apple stack cake. Can you describe dried apple stack cake and what it is and where you'll find it? Well, it's it's definitely an old Southern tradition, a settler tradition. Um, this area is very rocky. A lot of things don't grow here. Um, but apple trees tended to do well, and we still have a lot of apple trees here, so that is very traditional. So anything you can make from apples uh, was always a big deal. And then things like, you know, things that leavened um, your your foods uh, were hard to get. These people were pretty isolated from the rest of the world. And uh, so they basically made like a, a short cake without any leavening. Um, they would dry the apples uh, in the fall and then that was something that you could um, you could make for you know the winter months uh, as like a nice little treat uh, because kids went to school in the winter but not during the summer months, and so uh, they would make those and it's 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 all right tasty wise I guess. <laughs> not my favorite thing in the world. Uh, I've had it with applesauce, which kind of, you know, sweetens it a little bit. It's a little dry. Um, But it's not something that you're going to find in a restaurant necessarily. What we have a lot of here are fried apple pies. And that is super, super popular. Um, Apple stack cakes you're going to have at like, you know, like you mentioned, fairs and, um, you know, any kind of like heritage fairs, things like that. But fried apple pie, because apple pie is not decadent enough. Let's deep fry it. Maybe some ice cream to go with that, too, with your fried apple pie. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> I can wait to eat my weight in fried apple pie. The apple barn out in Townsend has the best because they put a bunch of cinnamon in it. It's so good. It tastes almost like a French, very light pastry just stuffed with uh, fresh apples. So good. Oh, another product of apples, you said a lot of apple trees growing in eastern Tennessee and the Gatlinburg area. One of the other byproducts I remember from when I lived in New England is apple cider. And we used to go to a place near our house that made hard apple cider. Um, is there anyone making hard apple cider in eastern Tennessee? Um, there is now. You know, this area was dry for a very long time. Um, and so, uh, you definitely had apple cider, uh, but now we're, we're kind of getting into the 21st century here and uh, there is a place that is uh, now starting to sell in downtown Gatlinburg. I have not tried it yet. Um, but locally around here, like in the Knoxville area, um, there's, there is a local distillery, but place that makes the hard apple cider and it's very good. Okay, so what about we hard apple cider? What about the one thing that everyone talks about in the Smoky Mountains in Appalachia is moonshine? So let's talk moonshine. Well, moonshine was at, or was for a long time, and probably is a little bit, but not quite so much, uh, an economic necessity. 
Uh, had to do a lot with the death of the American chestnut tree, the fact that um, people needed, uh, when the American chestnut trees died and they couldn't harvest the chestnuts, uh, they needed another uh, way of making some uh, extra money because they were mostly subsistence farmers here. Um, and they were uh, from Scotland and Ireland, so they had these old whiskey recipes and they just modified it for what they had around here, which was mostly corn, and uh, started making moonshine. Uh, they tried to be good citizens. They paid taxes. They would go to Knoxville and sell it uh, to the market until Jack Daniels heard about the competition and didn't like it. And uh, word is that he paid off officials to uh, arrest these poor little mountain folk. And uh, so they went into hiding and they kept making their moonshine and they kept selling it. Uh, and eventually the revenuers kind of were figuring out where they were. So these locals, they souped up their engines so they could outrun the revenuers. And that eventually turned into NASCAR racing. Um, so it was a big tradition around here. Now it's legal that you have a lot of distilleries that are local that are popping up. I think we have four now in Gatlinburg and they are definitely using a lot of these old recipes. Um, I still know of two places that make the old-timey uh, moonshine, and I will say it's better. <laughs> the old, by old-timey moonshine, you mean the not legal stuff. Exactly. <laughs> ah, very good. So, you know, there's some, uh, some of these uh, moonshiners were famous characters in their own right. Describe some of these characters. Who are some of these characters that were involved with moonshining, these larger-than-life personalities? Definitely, I'd say Popcorn Sutton was our most famous one. And he would make these underground videos kind of thumbing his nose up to people, uh, to the feds, and release them. And um, he's actually been featured on whatever that moonshine show is, the reality show. Uh, but he lived around here. I met him uh, during a, uh, my daughter's soccer game. We stopped at this little heritage festival. <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, it was Pigeon Forge that was dry at the time. Pigeon Forge now serves uh, liquor, but at the time it wasn't. And here was this heritage festival where all these people are doing crafts. And there's this old dude who looked like he just came out of, you know, central casting. He had this long beard and the overalls and the floppy hat. And he is brewing up some moonshine right in the middle of this <laughs> heritage festival on a Sunday, no less. <laughs> Oh, the horror. (laughs) The horror, exactly. And he was trying his, you know, of course, he had to try his wares to make sure it was okay. And he had these little itty-bitty Dixie cups that he was handing out. (laughs) So so we we tried some, and it was phenomenal. And um, then we left. We went to soccer. We came back. And by the time we came back, he was three sheets to the wind. He was so trash. He was not invited back the next year. (laughs) Popcorn has since passed away because he did get caught with, I think, 40 stills in the National Forest, which was right outside of the Smokies, um, and he was facing some pretty hard time. Um, but apparently his recipe still survives, and there's still a few here and there, so they say. So I'd just like to point out, you know, the stereotype of the soccer mom is the uh, the lady with the what they call the mommy juice. And this is thought to be usually wine. But I guess in the Great Smoky Mountains, mommy juice is shine. Absolutely. As long as it's apple pie shine. <laughs> Good deal. 
you know, again, it's not legal to make moonshine at home. It's not legal to have your own still, if I'm not mistaken. But I do know for a fact, because I was doing research on this for a project I was working on a few years ago, that there are books out there that will show you how to do it. And one thing that I learned that was really interesting, because the the stereotype is that you've got these stills that are out in the woods, but if you want to make it at home, and again, I am not condoning illegal behavior in any way, shape, or form, but you can do it basically in your kitchen sink with a pressure cooker and some copper wire. And it's a, it's a pretty simple process once you kind of know what you're doing. Although again, like mushrooms, you have to be careful because you can poison your family. You can, or you can blow your house up. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's the other thing. You can you can end up with a free skylight in your house. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, I was really impressed watching uh, Popcorn Sutton's videos. Uh, you know, these people, they're scientists. They're, they're chemists. They, you know, there's an art form to doing this. It's not just a bunch of yahoos out in the backwoods. Um, these people really knew what they were doing. It, it's kind of an amazing process. Let's talk about some of the other food that's famous in eastern Tennessee. Uh, banana pudding. Is this a big thing in eastern Tennessee? You cannot go to a uh, memorial or, you know, funeral or a church service without having, you know, lots and lots of different types of banana pudding. It's not necessarily my favorite, um, <laughs> but you'll get plenty of it, yes. Another screaming endorsement from Vesna for uh, banana pudding and apple stack cake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's other better things, you know, moonshine and fried apple pie. What else? <laughs> Breakfast of champions. That's right. Okay, what about okay? What about grits? Those uh, must be the most famous thing for coming from Tennessee. Love grits, and again, we go back to our heritage. There's a lot of corn growing here. Um, and so they really got creative with grits. And um, right now they're becoming very bougie. There's, you know, lots of different types of, you know, grits. You can get um, all kinds of great restaurants there. The uh, Cherokee Grill serves a uh, blue cheese grit that basically I want to bathe in when I go there. It's, <laughs> so, yes, grits are grits are are a favorite around here. And you can do some amazing things with that. It's a nice base to a lot of um, meals, um, you know, the fish dishes. Uh, you can do anything with grits. Where are some of your favorite places? You mentioned one place to get uh, the blue cheese grits. Where are some of your other favorite places to get grits? Well, um, more of a kind of basic place down the street is uh, Trish's, and uh, she's more of a diner, and she does more of the traditional, um, you know, butter grits that go with everything. Um, uh, I'd, I'd say probably any kind of little pancake place that you go around here, you're going to get some really nice grits. Um, they'll add cheddar cheese to it. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a sweet dish. Uh, up on top of Mount LeConte, where you have to hike up and spend the night, and um, there's a lodge up there. Uh, they will serve you grits with breakfast, and uh, again, it's got that butter and cheddar cheese, and it's just a really good hearty uh, dish, especially when you're hiking. So you said kind of going into diners and getting grits, but you also said that grits have kind of gone upscale, which reminds me, you know, grits cousin is polenta, 
which, you know, you used to be able to get in Italian restaurants for a couple of bucks. And polenta, like grits, have gone upscale. You go to a fancy Italian restaurant and they're not shy about charging you $15, $18 for a slab of polenta with a little marinara on the top, which is crazy to me because polenta, you know, polenta mix costs two cents a serving. So it's funny that now grits are getting that same upscale treatment as polenta. Yeah, absolutely. But it's delicious. So <laughs> I'd pay it. <laughs> That's right. It's worth it, right? Any other dishes that you can think of from Eastern Tennessee, if folks are coming to visit, that they should be on the lookout for? Definitely ribs uh, from Calhoun's. Calhoun's is a is a old traditional southern uh place that is you know incredibly popular and the grits are or the uh the ribs are delicious um they have barbecue of course you can't come to east tennessee without barbecue and east tennessee barbecue is different from um what you would get like in memphis memphis they uh pretty much cook it in this sauce here it's more of a dry uh dry cook and then you add the sauce to it um and there's a, a place up the street bennett's barbecue and uh, they'll serve like three different types of sauces. Um, they have a sweet sauce, a mild, and a um, very spicy one. And, uh, you know, you add that, you eat it with the sandwich. Um, and that's, you know, incredibly popular here. Um, you know, then you'll get corn on the side, that type of thing. So, um, you know, we've got that. And then we've got some maybe not so traditional places here that are kind of popping up. Uh, we've got uh, a really nice little tapas bar. Um, a little Spanish uh, tapas uh, bar in um, our arts and crafts community that's lovely. Uh, they're more of a wine bar. Um, and so, you know, we're getting pretty foodie around here. And then more traditionally, we've got the Wild Plum Tea Room. And uh, they're famous for their Wild Plum Tea which I don't think has any plum in it, but it's delicious <laughs> and sweet. Um, and then they make these wonderful uh, little apple muffins, back to the apples. Uh, and then, of course, pancakes are all the rage here, and that's because we used to have a lot of maple trees here. And uh, so maple syrup was a big deal, and so pancakes are everywhere. Vesna, before we let you go... Um, if people are coming to Eastern Tennessee, if they want to go to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, if they want to book a tour with you, if they want to go to the Eco Lodge, how can they reach A Walk in the Woods? Uh, well, our website is the best. We're updating it right now, but um, it's it's awalkinthewoods.com, and uh, they can ask us questions from there. Vesna, thank you so much for joining us on Destination Eat Drink. We look forward to hiking with you in the woods, and we'll see you on the trails. Sounds great. Good talking to you, Brent. All right. Now you know. Moonshine and fried apple pie. Thanks to Vesna Placanis for taking the time to talk about the cuisine of eastern Tennessee and the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And if you have a question or comment about this episode of Destination Eat Drink or any of the episodes in the podcast, you can hit me up on Facebook at Destination Eat Drink, on Instagram, Destination Eat Drink, on Twitter at Eat Destination, or just click the contact tab at DestinationEatDrink.com. That'll do it for this episode of the podcast. Join me next week when we visit one of the world's truly great wine regions, Bordeaux, France. Destination Eat Drink has been distributed by Ed Silla of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. 
and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.